Welcome to our new instance of our McKinsey and Healthcare podcast. Today, I have the pleasure to speak with Errol Pierre, the Senior Vice President of State Programs at HealthFirst. The topic of today's podcast will be health equity. The COVID-19 pandemic exacerbated long-standing health and social inequities, and a broader social discourse on health equity is underway. One of the organizations that has made such an activation is Health First. Health First is New York's largest not-for-profit insurer and provides plans across Medicaid, Medicare Advantage, long-term care, qualified health plans, and individual and small group plans. Health First currently serves 1.7 million members across these products. Errol Pierre is the Senior Vice President of State Programs at Health First, and in that role oversees Health First, Medicaid, and commercial products. Errol, thank you for taking the time to share your experience with us today. Absolutely. And Carlos, thanks for having me. New York is arguably one of the most diverse cities in the world, with Health First members collectively speaking 70 different languages. How do you see that diversity creating challenges or opportunities in managing the health of the community? Yes, absolutely. I, I look at it all as opportunities, honestly, because uh, it allows us to bring together a diverse group of people and we share best practices. And I think that's the key to diversity, the, our ability to leverage uh, everyone who has a different lens looking at the same problem and then coming up with ideas and strategies and then being able to take the best practices from all the different uh, ideas. And so an example is we have patient populations that are Chinese. We have patient pop huge populations that are Haitian descent. We have uh, patient populations that are Dominican descent. And all these different populations have different issues, different uh, health disparities. And we work with those doctors on how to tackle them. They all need different flavors of the same end goal through cultural competency. So if something worked with one population, sometimes we try it with another, but slightly change it based on the needs of that population. And we partner very closely with key stakeholders in those communities that say, I know the message you want to get across. This is the best way to do it. And so working through them, we have credibility with those populations to be able to move the needle. How did that bespoke model to each of your communities work while you were at the height of the pandemic? We're serving, again, some of the most vulnerable, ethnically diverse patients in New York City. Uh, we quickly, because of our population, saw the disproportionate impact on black and brown communities. And that's from the South Bronx to Elmhurst, Queens. We also saw survival rates that depended more on your zip code than how healthy you were. And from there, it, it enabled us to know where to focus. So there were uh, a cross-functional team where everyone played their part in terms of trying to figure out where to put our resources and where to sort of step in and try to help the members the most. Uh, our Medicon team was able to work closely with our chief information officer and our chief analytics officer to create a dashboard that provided us the needed transparency into where the COVID admits were happening the most. And with that visibility, we're able to know where to um, put our resources into play. And with that, that was such a critical piece for us to un understand those nuances. Then 
we could partner with community physicians who were trusted in those communities to really put in interventions. An example is um, we partnered with a physician group called Somos. They're one of the, one of the largest uh, physician groups in New York State. And that's just one example of our ability to curate very culturally competent uh, solutions for the members we served. I think at the introduction, you talked about an app that you deployed to be able to engage members during the time. Can you talk a little bit about, about that and more broadly how you've engaged members throughout these difficult years? COVID hit around March of 2020 and um, utilization was dropping tremendously for our community physicians. And so we knew that the only way for access to care to continue to happen at the spike of COVID was through telehealth. So quickly, we made sure that all of our 1.7 million members, if they had a phone, were able to get telehealth services. Our mobile app wasn't set to be released that early in the year. So we were able to move it up to around April, where we were able to deploy it, and they literally had to click a button to get access to telehealth services if they needed it. So that was one big push. Another big push was from our quality standpoint, um, our physicians were unable to get members to come to their doctor's offices, obviously, because of social distancing. So we modified the quality program where things could be mailed to the home, like a colorectal screening through ColorGuard, versus things that had to be done in the doctor's office. So we we're consistently looking for ways to make it easier for the member. Uh, the second piece was we uh, worked with our pharmacy team so through different uh, partners that we have that were in our pharmacy network, they, uh, members did not have to go to the pharmacy to get their scripts if they were on chronic meds. We actually had partners that could deliver it to their home, and we had a directory where you could look for pharmacies that did delivery. And so these were all things that we brought to the table in the height of COVID to make sure that our, our patients were taken care of, even though they couldn't physically see a doctor. We tried to wrap um, things around them. What other things did you do during the pandemic or before to support uh, and collaborate with community organizations? Great question. So during the pandemic, if you use the phone book to find a food pantry, you might have to call five or six places to find one that was actually open at the height of COVID. So we worked with um, an organization called NowPal that has a digital online directory for social services. Services, So whether it's food or rent or domestic violence, any need that has nothing to do with healthcare, it's more of the social determinants of health that impact health, any, any need that someone had, we were not only working with NowPow to update the list so that everything in their online directory was updated so we knew which social service entities were open during COVID, but we were also trying to find gaps. So for example, if there was not enough food in a certain zip code based on our assessment, we found food deserts in communities that we were servicing, then we would um, find those gaps and then work with NowPow to find community-based organizations to add to NowPow. How do you all think about ways of engaging members that might not be as digitally native or who might not have access to a stable broadband? Our philosophy is we say digital first. Digital first doesn't mean digital only. We know many of our 
uh, low-income members, our most vulnerable members on Medicaid, still have a smartphone. Um, so while we're pursuing a digital approach, we always have an avenue for in-person partnership. But uh, on the digital side, I'll give you an example. Our marketing team was using text messages to, to tell members where vaccination sites were, to ask members if they wanted a vaccination, and we would actually schedule it on their behalf. We we're doing that through the digital means. Now, the non-digital means was we were consistently in communities. Once COVID started to open up a little bit, we were consistently in communities where the, where the hurt was the most and where the, the need was the most, providing education with different partnerships and different providers. So we were giving COVID education seminars. We were donating masks at food pantries. We we're donating PPE. We were in, in these communities. And so our digital approach is digital first. It's never digital only. So whether they wanted to see us virtually or see us in person, we had an opportunity for them to see us. The one other thing I'll say too is some of it was hybrid, partially in person, partially digital. So even in the community office, if you were in person, we still had a paperless approach. So using technology, someone could take a picture of the document with their phone and text it to our rep and our rep could take it and upload it. So even in an in-person mode where we had social distancing, masks, plexiglass, there was still the ability to use digital tools even when we we're in person. You also talked about data and analytics to help inform which communities to pursue and understand what was going on on them. Can you talk a little bit more about that? They, they have um, different data sets that look at social risk. And so it's not a predictive model, but it's more so based on the zip code, the um, language spoken, the census tract data. It tells you a social uh, index score to say these folks potentially are more vulnerable than other folks. And obviously, we can back that up with um, some of our internal information and, and anecdotal from what we know from the field and some of the claims that we see. Uh, so we, we were able to segment our population based on these this, this, this data so that we know uh, if we enroll a member from that neighborhood, for example, there's a high likelihood there's going to be a, a higher disease burden. There's a high likelihood that this member is going to need care management. So we're proactively engaged in that member early on as they enroll, as opposed to just waiting for something to happen. Uh, so we're getting better and better at using analytics to be proactive in our care management approach. That's just starting. Uh, but we absolutely use data um, so, so we could better serve our members. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you are embedded within those communities to understand more at the ground level what is happening in those communities? What is the the perceptions and the beliefs, and how you you uh, navigate around those. Yes, yes. So part of our tenets of health equity is uh, the diversity of our employees, which we see as a strength. We hire from the communities we serve. So we have over 400 people in the field that are enrolling members into products and re-enrolling and re renewing members into products to keep them active. They look like the members they serve. They speak the languages. And there's a connection and a trust factor there. Uh, we do the same thing with nurses. 
We have nurses that go into homes to do assessments. We have nurses that do care management. And we try our best to make sure the nurses match the populations they serve. So that builds the trust. And it also, we have um, an ear to the ground on what's happening. So an example is as um, crime started to rise um, in the wake of COVID and Asian hate crimes grew, uh, we quickly heard that from our Asian employee population and put into place um, security uh, measures to protect them better as they were in the communities that they were serving. And we heard that from them before the news articles found out because they were actually there. They were the ones in the community seeing what was happening. Um, and there was a lot of work we did with different community partners like Kaipa um, to sort of make sure that the, their voices were heard and that we make sure that they were prote- they felt protected when they were serving the community. So being embedded is a staple to our success. We want to be hyper-local. Those are words that we use. And we also have a community engagement team that their sole purpose is making sure that there are engagements with the key community leaders and stakeholders so that we have on the ground feedback on what's happening and what their needs are. And we listen to them. Uh, We're very collaborative with the communities to say, here's what we think we can do. What can you do? And it's a partnership to make sure that we advance um, the health outcomes for the populations. You talked about Health First Value-Based Program and the close collaboration with your hospital systems in, in the city. Can you talk about how that collaboration translates into supporting health equity? Absolutely. Our quality program is arranged in a way that physicians are receive incentives based on the quality measures that they reach. And so an example of a quality measure would be mammograms for women that are on the PCPs panel at a certain age. So the denominator is the how many women that are assigned to them. And the numerator is you need to get to 95%. 95% of every woman that's eligible for mammogram should get one. And why we think that's health equity is every doctor has to hit those, those goals for them to get the um, financial incentive. And so now, whether it's a black woman, a brown woman, a woman who is speaks Urdu and, and never spoke English or what have you, wherever they are, the physicians are crafting ways that are culturally competent to get their patient back into the office for that that um, that preventive care visit. So we believe our quality program gets to health equity because now we're saying everyone is getting the care they need and it's equitable, meaning some might need a taxi ride, which is part of some of the benefits. Some will come on their own. Some will need a reminder. Some will need more effort. And the physicians go about figuring out who needs more effort to bring them in. So it's a collaborative approach to try to find the non-responders. And that gets to health equity because now every member is getting the care they deserve. So that's the first piece on the the quality side. On the um, value-based payment side, where there's a surplus arrangement, they are now focused on high-quality care. And they're also focused on eliminating waste, fraud, and abuse. Um, So I think those are the two levers. The financial incentives are aligned so that we're not just doing tests for test's sake. And then also the quality program ensures that every member is getting the care they deserve. So from this conversation, I I see that you've made a a strong combination of being hyper-local with a strong community engagement partnerships both with the community and the providers, and both sharing tools and data and collaboration, but also putting the financial arrangements in place. 
You talked about digital first, but not digital only, as a way to help accelerate access to care for all the populations. And you talk about data and analytics to help inform some of those interventions. So question for you is, what are some of your biggest lessons from the, the pandemic? And what of those interventions that we talked through will you carry forward? The focus on digital was a big deal. We saw behavior health claims increase through telehealth. We saw our members using Zoom for the first time and being more comfortable with our cell phone. So I think those are things that won't go away in the future. Uh, we want to continue to embed that into all the things we do, even post the pandemic. Uh, another thing that we realized is the power of collaboration. There were different community groups, health plans, for-profit plans that were getting together in New York to help service the community that probably would have never collaborated in the past. And, you know, COVID was a, a health issue, right? COVID is a virus. However, it, it sort of uh, exacerbated the social determinants of health that impact health. So yes, it was a virus that hit us. However, the biggest issue we heard from our members was access to food was a big deal or shelter and having a home was a big deal. So I think another lesson learned is how big of a deal um, the social determinants of health are and that at anything we do in the future, we have to look through a health equity lens, thinking about the services and the needs of our members that go beyond just a health first ID card. Errol, if you could go back in time, what would you change about your approach during the pandemic? You know, when the website came out for people to get testing and then also to get vaccinations, the websites were primarily English only and you had to access them on a desktop. And so um, when you talk about health equity, we built the access to, to COVID tests and to COVID vaccinations in a way that excluded the most vulnerable populations. And we didn't learn that until too late. I think just remembering the lessons from COVID that we learned, you have to have a, a health equity lens at the world to make sure the most vulnerable populations get the same access as everybody else. Can you talk about what some of the things that you did at Health First to get the organization to be all in on health equity? We were already value-based. We were already serving the most vulnerable populations. We already had health equity in our DNA close to 30 years, just from the inception of when Health First was created. In 2020, our CEO very quickly ensured that health equity was going to be a corporate goal for the organization. So when we developed our top priorities corporately, at the top of the list was health equity right next to compliance. So while some companies are hiring chief health equity officers, our approach has been more collaborative, meaning we look through a lens of health equity in everything we do, and essentially everyone is an ambassador for health equity. How do you see the future for health equity? Yeah, I, I think the goal now is to move from crisis to recovery. And so the questions we're asking ourselves is, what does health equity look like in a post-COVID world? We still have massive shortages with physicians and nurses. And even within those shortages are even bigger needs when it comes to ethnic concordance. And by ethnic concordance, I'm referring to when patients see similarities in their physicians. And we know research shows that 
if patients see similarities in their physicians, that can lead to improved communication, higher adherence rates, better healthcare outcomes. And so we're thinking through what advances can we actually make to make health equity more sustainable. New York City and the Department of Health, they proclaimed racism to be a public health crisis. And so I think we're asking ourselves, what does our industry look like after that proclamation? What structural changes can we make to unravel the decades and decades of rules that allowed health inequity to exist? And we're literally trying to figure out a system that promotes systemic equity. Uh, so I think that's the future, is policies, program, procedures, health plans, providers, pharmaceutical companies, all literally looking through, at, at, through a lens of health equity saying the most vulnerable populations have to get the care that they need. What structural changes do you think are needed to improve health equity across the industry? It's a good question. One, I would start with Medicaid rates. And then two, I would focus on um, the quality programs for health plans. And why start with rates? Uh, until those change, uh, we don't think we will be able to shrink the time it takes for a Medicaid member to see a specialist. So there's a big difference between the reimbursement rates for Medicaid plans as it is for commercial plans. And what that difference translates into is almost like a two-tiered healthcare system for members. And so it can take up to three months, four months for a Medicaid member to access the same doctor that potentially it takes two weeks for a commercial a doctor receiving commercial rates. And so we think the smaller the difference between Medicaid and commercial, the better we'll have in terms of health equity outcomes. From the quality programs perspective, we believe quality programs are the one way to get health plans, hospitals, physicians to all work together for the betterment of the members' health outcomes. And so the more the emphasis that's put on quality programs where we are incentivizing physicians to do what's right for the patient, the more we think we'll have better outcomes for all of our members. If you had one piece of advice for organizations focusing on health equity today, what would those be? One piece of advice is make it part of your DNA, not a separate department that's off on its own trying to do something. Always check your biases, no matter how hard you try. Bias will seep into your decision making. Have to make sure you're checking for your biases. And the more diversity you have in your leadership ranks, the better your health plan or organization will perform. That's just data that's proven by many different consulting groups. Um, but that's how I think we're going to move the needle on health equity. It was um, very exciting to hear about what you all did at HealthFirst and how you took a holistic approach, a member and community center approach, leveraging technology, leveraging partnerships, leveraging data. And I really appreciate your thoughts on how we could as a community and as an industry, make progress on those goals. Thank you. Thank you very much for that time. No, thank you. And, and you rattled off a lot of things that we've done. And we still believe that we have so much more work to do. So we're rolling up our sleeves and getting ready to get to work. Errol, thank you so much for your time. I think this was a um, fascinating discussion.